Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk And again, it's a pleasure to have you join us. We're um, going to start the show, as always, with giving thanks to the One Most High, to our ancestors, to the Eurishas, to the deities, to the guardians, to the angels, to those who continue to watch over us and bless us with the ability to wake up this morning, a morning like this morning, and to be able to breathe and have our breakfast and lunch and just to engage in our journey in this experience called life. This afternoon, we are really uh, excited about having a guest, a special guest with us, a bassist who's world-renowned. His name is Alex Lane, and he is with us this afternoon to share with us his experience as a musician, as a bassist, as an elder statesman of the jazz community. And uh, we just got finished hearing uh, a, a, a rendition of his band performing at a club, uh, prior to that, of course, I was playing the drum, the African drum, the djembe, 
which I think is essential to have in every household, and that's something that we will talk about later on in the show. And along with us, we have my lovely wife, Dr. Dora Gray, who's joined us, and she's going to share her knowledge and her energy and love with us. And without any further ado, I'd just like to say good afternoon to Brother Alex. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you, Bubba? I'm doing yeah. quite well, thank you. So much of a pleasure to have you with it's, us. It's my pleasure, indeed. <laughs> yes. Matter of fact, we both are Brooklyn. In, in fact, I, I was surprised to hear you myself being referred to as an elder statesman. Well, you are. When for so much of my career, I was only referred to as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, indeed, uh, like it or not, you know, yeah. they say, I'm going to love you whether you like it or not. I'm going to call you an elder statement. Well, that's statement, a, it's a blessing. Like I mean, I accept it <laughs> gladly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I even uh, came up with a label of um, name of Griot, and mm -hmm. he was uh, wondering what that meant. And indeed, uh, uh, that's an African um, term that's used by those in the village, in the community, who hold the history mm -hmm. of, of their um, of, of the community of the of, of the uh, lineage, mm -hmm. you know, of the ancestors, the storytellers, storytellers, mm -hmm. going back sometimes hundreds, if not thousands, of years, mm -hmm. and they know it verbatim, mm -hmm. you know, through memory. Mm -hmm. And um, I always um, think of uh, brothers and sisters like yourself who've been through this particular unique journey. Mm -hmm. called jazz, which is, uh, as many uh, would state, is one of the, if not the only original art form produced by this country, mm -hmm. uh, which started its journey in Africa. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's brothers uh, like yourself who I've met who um, share this, just have a wealth of knowledge and of the history of this music. Mm -hmm. So uh, i just like to share with the listening audience the fact that Alex uh, was born here in New York City, as a matter of fact, Harlem, New York, Correct. And you begun your, your musical career in 1959 at Count Basie's nightclub. Yes. Right? And after attending high school of music and art, and I, uh, I found out that you were an upstanding student with uh, awards and acclamation. Not, not at that point. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Prior or after? Oh, honestly, yeah, after. after. When I, re okay. I returned to school at 30 years of age. Uh -huh. okay. and, and at that point, I guess I could have been considered an outstanding student, and I did uh, win some awards upon my graduation from Bronx Community College, mm -hmm. which is where I uh, continued to. At first, I had to go back and get my GED. Uh, I left high school in my uh, right after my sophomore year. Uh, okay. So uh, you know, in music and art, in fact, I only stayed there a year. Mm -hmm. because they wanted me to go to summer school. And at that time, that was out of the question for me. Yes. And uh, so rather than go to summer school, and, and, and also I did have no idea of becoming a professional musician. I had just gained entry into the school uh, sort of on a lark. Uh, they came by one day in the seventh grade and said, who wanted to take the test? And uh, I raised my hand, you know, being sort of a wise guy. Yes. But... I subsequently took the test, and to my shock, I passed it. Oh, wow. And uh, because uh, the irony is that I had been studying piano from 6 until 12. Hmm. At, right before my 12th birthday, I graduated from elementary school, and my mother called me, and she said, listen, I'm so tired of fighting with you about practicing. 
uh, do you want to stop taking piano lessons? I said, yes, thank God. I was feeling like I couldn't, I couldn't wait. So, I mean, that's what preceded my uh, gaining entry to music. And I, would, and I had always had this interest in bass somehow. I don't know where it came from. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, to gain entry. I, I found out later on, I was fairly decent academically, but what the main requirement that they looked for was the ability to hear uh, my ear. And I didn't realize that I had probably what is considered above average ability to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I didn't know what I was hearing, I couldn't describe it technically. Yes. And so uh, they said, you know, well, if you're not going to go to summer school, you got to get out of here. So I got out of there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you went you went on to community college and then of course Queens and yes. uh, majoring in in in, uh, in music and um, had the uh, the the good fortune the blessing of meet, meeting other bases such as uh, Stuart uh, Sankey, well, Sankey it, and yeah. Ron Carter and Alvin Brim Brim Brim. Yeah. Uh, well, those are my teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Ron was probably the first teacher. And we were, though unequal in skill, we were sort of equal in, I guess, uh, close to the same age. And uh, I even used to sub for him sometimes uh, on various gigs when he could make it. In fact, I had the the privilege of being subbing for a number of uh, the top bass players at the time, Richard Davis and uh, among Mm -hmm. others. And... uh, uh, Stuart Sankey was, oh, actually, I guess Stuart Sankey was my first teacher. He was, uh, uh, I can't remember, he was from Juilliard, and that's how we had gotten his name. My mother called Juilliard mm-hmm. and asked him to recommend somebody. And Alvin Brim was uh, the principal bass player for the New York City o- o- Opera. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. and he was, uh, I guess he was, I credit him as being the first guy that really woke me up. Mm-hmm as to what I needed to do in order to progress as a musician and as a bass player in particular, and to the fact that I had actually been holding myself back by not forcing or being forced by my previous teachers Mm -hmm. to do things that I would have considered impossible. Ah. And he did that in one lesson. So he... he he stretched you yeah. beyond what you considered to be your limitations. Yeah, the first lesson he... And the he, first lesson you was able to... He threw out this music in front of me, uh-huh. and I said, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I stayed at it for about five minutes. He said, yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And I said to myself, is this guy kidding me? Was he kidding me? He had triplets and all kinds of things. Yes, and, and I struggled through that music for a whole hour. Yeah. And I was so frustrated. And But when I left him... I realized that progress comes from breaking barriers. Yes. And that I had never really been forced through instruction at any rate to break barriers. Mm-hmm. I had been sort of forced uh, to do so on the job. Uh, but uh, that was uh, my first, I would say, real awakening which I'm forever grateful to him for, you know. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah um, honey, I just wanted to have the audience hear your voice and and, and just to share the fact that you, uh, 
uh, also a violinist and and being a, a string instrumental um, performer. That there's a synergy that you you had immediately with uh, Brother Alex, and uh, I know that you've given me a violin and and I picked it up and. <laughs> and, and I have this uncanny ability to pick up an instrument mm-hmm. and get some kind of decent sound out mm-hmm. of it because you know I I play uh, uh, I start off with clarinet mm-hmm. and then trumpet and one of my tr- my trumpet player actually was uh, Sidney Baker and he mm-hmm. he was a uh, a philharmonic trumpeter mm-hmm. which I didn't realize how difficult that is and. He was the, the first trumpeter player in My Fair Lady. Well, clarinet is supposed to be the most difficult one to read. It is, and I was able to <laughs> activate that. But uh, going back to, to my wife, uh, with her being a violinist and being mm-hmm. a teacher as well, which requires quite a few patience to be mm-hmm. teaching children, because mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't really readily have, most of them, the uh, interest. Uh, interest or the adaptation to get the sound that's required mm-hmm. to be acceptable. So this share with us, honey, um, your experience as a violin teacher and for what Alex has shared about him being able to be challenged to really uh, up the ante in terms of being a proficient musician. So first I'd like to just greet our listeners. Alafia, namaste, I greet you. In the name of the Most High, I thank you for taking your time out this afternoon to spend with us. And oh, interact yes. with us. Yes. Being a musician, and I, I humbly accept the label of being a violinist. Mm. I humbly accept that label. And uh, music is one of the most spiritual and rewarding experiences that I believe a person can engage in. I kind of fell into music. It wasn't it wasn't a choice. Later on when I started playing guitar and you know I dabbled with the saxophone for a little bit, that didn't work out at all. But uh it just didn't the you know, the woodwind instruments are not for me, but uh the string instruments, yes, uh in the elementary school system, I taught all of the strings. Mm-hmm. Violin, viola, cello, and stand-up bass. And uh, the experience with the children, I, I can't describe anything more rewarding. To watch children pick up an instrument that, first of all, they didn't choose. They might have been forced into it by their parents mm-hmm. or, or just basically stuck with it because you're in that particular curriculum at school, and so you end up having to take music whereby your counterparts might have ended up having to take a different subject. And so to be able to engage them to the point where they now love it, and we're playing Barry White tunes and things like that on violin, and like that's amazing to see children do that. But I always say, though, I'm qualifying amazing because our children are some of the most brilliant children on the planet, and I say that without reservation. They just are. So even though you're watching them and you're saying, wow, intellectually, you're not surprised because they can do these things and more. So... You know, I, I could talk all day about yes, yes. music, mm-hmm. 
However, we want to hear from your guest, Mr. Alex. Absolutely, ma'am. And, uh, but yes, there was a synergy because, as you know, like all three of us sitting here right now are musicians. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, there is that synergy that once, once you meet another musician, something just clicks and that, that synergy exists. Mm-hmm. So it's a very powerful thing. That's why I say it can be a very spiritual experience. Absolutely. Musicians, Absolutely. all music just spans the entire gamut. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're a musician, you know that you have friends who are musicians who are, you know, sky's the limit, race, gender, right, educational level. None of that matters when you get together and you're playing music. That's yeah. why I call it a synergistic experience. You're just all together mm-hmm. forming one note. Mm-hmm. There's a, a uh, app or a posting that I have that I post sometimes, and it has a picture of the brain. Mm-hmm. And it says that music illuminates every part of the brain. Mm. Mm-hmm. And also added to that fact is that music is actually really based on the science of mathematics. Yes. In every sense, rhythmically as well as tonal, tonal, tonally, it's all mathematical. And it also is based on a logic. Mm-hmm. And it has been proven that the study of music enhances one's intellectual ability to to understand and and master other subjects as well Mm -hmm. and which is why at least at one point in new york they had begun to almost include it universally in in the primary levels of education Mm -hmm. Uh, and i and i didn't i never understood why my mother my mother was a teacher Mm -hmm. but she wasn't musically uh, active at all there had been some members of her family in the previous generation which purported to have been uh, string players. But I never really understood why she almost insisted that my sister and I study music, other than the fact that uh, the study of music being the primary art is uh, a part of what would be called a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. And And I think, she never said so, but I think that this was probably her idea of not because never never thinking that I would ever become a musician and not particularly ever wanting me to become a musician because in those days, I'm going back nineteen forties, I mean, among the black community, being a musician among the good people was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Because of and especially jazz, because right. jazz is the origin. Mm-hmm. You know. And so uh, I mean my sister and I agitated for this piano and one day, Christmas, we woke up, and it was a piano in the living room. Wow. So we started, I started banging, and my mother said, oh, no. And we said, you know, no. She said, no, no, you have to take lessons. Uh. And I said, lessons? What's that? To my chagrin, I found out. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But I, I was fortunate to have some very good teachers, my first two theologies were very good, Mm -hmm. and the second one in particular, because I had some deficiencies, Mm -hmm. and she recognized it, and uh, she wanted my mother particularly to get me a metronome, Mm -hmm. and uh, 
but now it's uh, you know, mm-hmm. metronome. But I mean, most people even know what a metronome right. was and those right. what the purpose was. So yes. he never really proceeded. Of course, eventually, some maybe some thirty years later, I found out that uh, how essential a metronome was in developing one's sense of time, of spacing, of beats, right. tempos, understanding tempos. So I uh, I practice using the metronome virtually every day. No, you do? Yes, yeah. Well, the bass player is considered to be the metronome of the band, right? Yes, well, the, the, actually the, the, drum, drummer? the drummer really fundamentally mm-hmm. has that uh, uh, requirement, that, that responsibility. Yes. But everybody in the bass player and the rhythm session must adhere to it, yes. you know, within the scope of their their performance, uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's the, the stability of the tempo that creates the level platform for the performers uh, to perform, because as I try to explain even to some of my students along the way, that essentially the bass, piano, and drums, especially bass and drums, mm-hmm. were accompanying instruments. Yes. You know, I mean... Some, because of the rise of recognition of some popular people on the instrument, the solo aspect of it has become very important to players as well. But I said initially, uh, the bass player and the drummer didn't solo, and they certainly didn't solo independently. Right. The piano, being the master instrument, they always had a solo capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 it's interesting what you talk about in terms of not until recent, well, not recent, but mm-hmm. in terms of 50 years or so, mm-hmm. that the, the bass and the drummer were allowed to, to take a solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and you've played with some of them, such as Ron Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I didn't such play as with Roy, Roy Haynes. Uh, uh, not Roy Haynes, but I played with Max Rose. I played with Max many Rose, many yeah. of the top drummers. I mean, I can't even, I'm trying to think of some of the names now, but, uh, you know, people like Percy Bryson was with uh, a number of the top singers, because I worked with a lot of singers. Uh, so I was Grady Tate. Yeah, Carmen you know, McRae. I, yeah, yeah. And, yes. Gloria Lynn. Gloria Lynn, yes. That was, Chrisella Oliphant was the drummer on that. Johnny Hartman. Johnny Hartman, yeah. yeah, yeah. And even Mary McKeever. Mary McKeever, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That was... Uh, she was the the, the the cause that or the person that actually enabled me to return to Africa. Ah, uh, uh-huh. interesting. Yeah, and I was. So you say return? You were there. Well, I mean, previously. I, no, I mean in terms of just being in, in African American. In terms mm-hmm. of me, me being, I think among the first black men of the 20th century to ever go back to Africa. Ah, uh-huh. you know, what I'm saying? I went back in 1967. Uh, back then, it wasn't even considered. People didn't even uh, the most, black, most black people didn't want to identify with Africa at all. Yes. They knew nothing about it. I mean, mm-hmm. this the the dashiki and the and the Afro and yeah, stuff I had remember. just began to come into into some degree of popularity. Yes, so now I tell people, I said, I, I we, the plane landed in Nairobi. He had this Afro about two feet in depth. Mm-hmm. Breath, and I had what we call a dashiki. Yeah, yeah. And I stepped off the plane, and I'm walking down the, the gangplank, and there's about half a dozen brothers, or airport workers, off mm-hmm. on the side, a couple hundred feet away. And as I'm coming down there, they looked at me, and they started pointing and talking in an animated manner, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that they had never seen a black man. First of all, there was nobody. In all the places I went to Africa, there was nobody with an afro. 
Where is this? What country? What country was this? This was Nairobi. Nairobi, yeah. Yeah, Kenya. There was no, there was, there wasn't an Afro in sight, and there wasn't a Dashiki in sight. Uh, You know, so I mean, I I tell people, I say, that must have looked like a cloud. They must have said, hey, is this a circus? The circus is coming to Nairobi. Who is this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, And that was my reawakening, my awakening to the fact that all I had known about Africa was from Tarzan movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. That I had no actual knowledge. And I tell you that that month, about maybe about six weeks we spent there, I was just bombarded every day with realization. First of all, most of the Africans didn't even know we were in America. Mm-hmm. They didn't even know because they didn't there was no television. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few had radio, and the radio was usually in the colonial language. Yes. You know, even, but there was some who could speak it. The, the leadership knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like uh, Nkuma and uh, Secretary, yeah. people who had, been, yes, who, had been, well, yeah, who had been educated mm-hmm. overseas or who had, 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 had uh, awareness of contemporary knowledge history. Mm-hmm. But the Irish brother didn't even know it, and, and I didn't realize until some years later when I became a follower of Elijah Muhammad. Yes. That Muhammad said, yes, they didn't know because they had hidden us under his names. And when he first said that, I said, what do you mean hidden us under his names? Then I realized what he was saying, mm-hmm. that there was no African with the name Alexander Lane. Right. So if they read a, re- a report, if they were able to read the colonial papers, and they said, well, Joe Jones got the lynch in Tupelo, Mississippi mm-hmm. yesterday, mm-hmm. or they burned down the house and killed his family. With that. They didn't know that these were black people mm. because we had the names of our slave master. Right. So we, they had no way of identifying with us. In fact, I, I, I often am amused by the, the adaptation of these African-sounding names that we have fallen in love with mm-hmm. since I guess ago, the late the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Everybody, Tamika, Taisha, Moesha, which I didn't have no, no source or no identity with no. the original language, right, right. but just they yes. tried to imitate the sound of the name. Because names were given uh, relative to the, the, the incarnation uh, Person of that soul. Well, you were probably. And, and, and oh, yeah, and, yes, and, yes. And, and, and what, originally, yes. And, and, and what that incarnation, the presentation of this soul back in the earth school, what its purpose was and what, and what it represented in terms of its skills. And and, so and this forth. is why, you know, when you became a Muslim under Elijah Muhammad, we were mm-hmm. given the designation X. Yes. And at some point, he began to give a few brothers what he called holy names like uh, Malcolm Shabazz mm-hmm. and Farrakhan, mm-hmm. Yusuf Shaw, who was the captain, brothers uh, who had exemplified themselves mm-hmm. by their service yes. and commitment. And so a lot of other brothers said, well, we want so-called holy names because they wanted to adopt the, the names. Of course, most of the Muslim names in the Middle East are actually uh, 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 names, uh, uh, descriptions of of God. They were, I can't even think of the term. Attributes of God. Yeah, Salam, yes. uh, Muhammad, mm-hmm. uh, and all these names. So, so 
they, they appealed to the messenger and said, well, you know, we are Muslims. Mm-hmm. He said, how come we can't, you know, put, adopt these names for ourselves? Mm-hmm. He said, because a name identifies you. Absolutely. He says, you don't even know who you are. Mm-hmm. That's why I give you the X, mm-hmm. because the X represents the unknown. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I mean, you know, this. I mean, I was just astounded by the wisdom of that he was emanating, you know. And I said, wow. And having been there, and and seen for myself, you know, and even with the European, that if you check out the original origin of European names, they usually identified you with a profession yes. or a place of origin yes. or that kind of thing. You Smith know. was a yeah. blacksmith. Yes, a blacksmith. Or, or, was or, a farmer. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, or if you came from a certain uh, uh, town, your name was John, yeah, yeah, so-and-so, yeah. whatever the name of the town was, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, though uh, no, I learned a lot in that initial trip to Africa, to put it in perspective, still remained ahead of me because uh, I went first back in 19, I went back in 1967 mm-hmm. and I didn't become a Muslim until 1969. Okay. And it wasn't until I studied the teachings and the wisdom of Muhammad that I was able to put what I had learned in that initial trip mm-hmm. into perspective did you get a chance to meet Malcolm X, or did you engage I didn't or interact meet, with him? I didn't meet Malcolm X, but I used to go. See, I came from a mixed culture family. Mm-hmm. My father was West Indian, mm-hmm. and my mother was uh, from South Carolina. Interesting. What part of the West Indies? Uh, St. Vincent. Okay. And in my home, even though my mother my mother attended Abyssinia Church. Oh, okay. And she was a, uh, a, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a, a follower to some degree of Adam Clayton Powell. Mm. She used to go out on 25th Street and demonstrate mm. when in the 1940s there were no employees on 125th Street above the position of janitor or cleaning woman. And Adam used to lead people out there. So this was before Bloomstein. No, Bloomsteins was there. I'm just saying, in terms of employees, they didn't hire blacks back then. No, they hired blacks, but none above the position of cleaning woman or maintenance man. Gotcha. So they were petitioning to be hired as salespersons, Mm -hmm. even stock people. Yes. You know, you couldn't even think about some of the management. Even the elevator operator for that. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, because, uh, so anyway, uh, I, uh, in my home, I had two parents who had overcome the vestiges of racism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my father coming from the West Indies, the, the racism that existed there was never the same as it was in the United States mm-hmm. to begin with because he lived in a black majority society. Mm-hmm. So it was only the same as in Africa. There was only a certain amount of control that they were able to exercise over the general population. Mm-hmm. And my mother, I don't know where she got it, but she was a college graduate in the 1930s and as a woman. And that was almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so, Quite I mean, so they always talked about development, mm-hmm. accomplishment. Mm-hmm. They never talked about 
being held back because of color. In fact, my father, had, when he opened up the grocery store, the white salesmen from the uh, wholesale companies used to come by to, to uh, selling goods. And I would be in the store and the white man would say, and maybe the store would be kind of crowded, and the white man would come and say, uh, hey, Mr. Lane, can I take you? Bus, just bus friends, hey, Mr. Lane, can I take your order? And my father would say, God damn, can't you see I'm busy? Wait till I'm finished. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that black men didn't talk to white men like that. Uh-huh. I, it was years later that I thought that yeah. I reflected and I said, wow. Yeah, face to face. Because he yeah. had come from a place where they, they weren't exactly. they weren't forced to that, that the level of submission. Yeah, well that, even beyond that they didn't have they didn't have they, they weren't forced. They didn't force they weren't forced yeah. in, in yeah. the West Indies and in Africa to that level of submission yeah. unless they pray for a house Negro. Yes. You understand? Yes. Yes. But but the most of the population sort of ran on their own. Mm-hmm. You know. And so uh, and and and, and, I, and I I guess I didn't even notice the reaction of the rest of the people around who were all from the South mm-hmm. in our neighborhood, you know. Yes, yeah, no, well they, they they were proud, they were in shock, I'm sure. Oh, they must have been. Yeah. I didn't pay any attention <laughs> until I reflected on it later. I said, "Wow, you talking that's to that's white men like that? You know where they came from? That would get you a, yeah, a, yeah, a rope, yeah, a ten foot yeah, rope, and yeah, a, yeah. with a knot on it, yeah. <laughs> you know, or beat down it at the very least, you know. But he did it well. You think it's like, God damn it, can't you see I'm, I'm busy? I'm way back. You want my own? Wait there. I'll, I'll be with you. And so, uh, and then my mother always emphasized education. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't know. So I, long story short, fast forward. When I was um, in my late teens, I started listening to the, there used to be the Four Corners on 7th Avenue on 125th Street. That's where the activists used to speak. I remember. And the one one that attracted me the most at the time was Carlos Cook from the African Nationalists, uh, you uh, know, because he was an excellent speaker. Uh, His, his, Utterances were full of humor, uh, and uh, you know. Yeah, I don't remember him. I yeah, probably yeah. heard him. He, I, well, he used to be on the uh, the northeast corner, mm-hmm. and Malcolm was on the north, on the southwest yeah, corner. Yeah, I remember Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. it was chock full enough did. right there. Yes, 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 I remember. So I used to listen to Malcolm, but I never, I never met him, mm-hmm. and I didn't become a Muslim until. The year after he died, he was killed. That was in '69. He, I think, he was killed in '68. Yes. So you. Yeah. So I became. Yeah, I, I got my ex in '69. Right. And was that at 116th Street? The, the, well, no, I'm from Brooklyn. Seven. Seven C in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, Madison Street. Yes, yes, yes. And as a result, there were three, four musicians that were in the uh, nation at that time here in New York. Mm-hmm. Myself, Ben Dixon. Very good drummer. Mm-hmm. Sonny Phillips, who used to work with, the, I'm trying to think, his organ player. I mean, a guitar player. Sir Charles Thompson. I remember Sir Charles, yeah. yeah. And uh, another uh, a tenor player named, uh, I think his last name was Washington, lived out on Long Island. Uh-huh. So we became like the uh, house musicians. For the nation. For the nation. We performed it all. Because immediately when I got my ex, I stopped playing in clubs. Mm-hmm. I was mistakenly led to believe that this is what was required. Now, I remember us talking about the fact that um, you played at Woody Crest. 
Yes, uh, yes. I told you that I, I grew up with yeah, uh, yeah. a number of brothers, uh, namely um, uh, Chuck Davis, who is known worldwide as Abby Do Know You Woolly. And we were, um, uh, along with James Blake, uh, who is also a member of the Nation of mm-hmm. Islam, he's known as Takbir Muhammad, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Loveday, Elroy Williams, and a host of other brothers and sisters. And as synergy would have it, mm-hmm. synchronicity. Uh, you being a member of the nation and being the the, the house band, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were, uh, that you had performed there, yeah. which was purchased by uh, the nation, mm-hmm. nation of Islam, at least one of the buildings, yeah. the dormitory that I lived in, which was um, orig- uh, organized by James Blake, one of our I didn't brothers. know him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is this an interesting journey that how brothers and sisters such as us um, we might look at each other and be each other's mm-hmm, company, mm-hmm. but not recognize how God, mm-hmm. how the Most High, how the universe has made arrangements for us to come together. Well, the thing that Muhammad said, he said that those who best understood what he was teaching mm-hmm. were musicians and doctors. And I, I, he never explained specifically what he meant. But in trying to understand it, I assumed that these were two professions that required a great deal of analyzation. Mm-hmm. And that might have been the reason why he said that, because what I found when I got in the nation, uh, as he used to say, he said, my followers followed me in doubt. Mm-hmm. Because they adopted the, the general philosophy, the general teachings, but they never studied in depth. Uh, when you got in the nation, you were given lessons. In fact, in order to get your ex, you had to memorize what they called the student enrollment and another sheet called actual facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first question in the student enrollment was, who was the original man? Mm-hmm. And it said the answer was, the original man is the Asiatic black man, maker, owner, cream of the planet Earth. And so, I mean, the first thing that stuck out was he said Asiatic. And I pondered over that, the use of that term for quite a while. Subsequently, I learned that the name Africa was the name given to the continent by Europeans. Mm -hmm. I have not yet been able to ever find out the origin or its meaning. Mm -hmm. But subsequently, when I looked at the map, uh, I found that, that actually, rather than having seven continents, as the Europeans have described, that they actually uh, maybe only four, because Asia, Africa, and Europe are all connected. Mm-hmm. And the continents are usually defined by being completely surrounded by water. Yes. You know, But you can walk from Cape Town all the way to uh, Beijing mm-hmm. without touching any water. You mm-hmm. might have to cross a river or something, right. but, but the land no, mass itself is no continuous. Ocean, no. Yeah, so, I, um, so I was, when I got my ex, I was in the, it was ironic because, I mean, just going back to reflecting what you say about destiny. Uh, when I got my ex, uh, the paper quota was 150. Guys. 
<laughs> so we had we went to I got my the Savior's Day was our big celebration. Yes. This, the celebrating the birthday of Master Farah So we, I went to Chicago. I got my ex. When I came back, they had raised the quarter from 150 to 300. Wow. And the next week, the mosque was empty. Mm. All the brothers had gone mm-hmm. because most, they weren't even selling 150. Mm-hmm. And uh, then also, as new uh, recruits, I guess, they, they initiated a six-month training program. Prior to that, the training program had been three weeks. Mm-hmm. So we were instructed in everything from uh, self-defense mm-hmm. uh, to spiritual matters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we were actually given a, a, a view of Islam in a much in-depth, greater in-depth sense that had ever been presented before. And, of course, we had lessons. And at the time, I didn't understand. Lesson lesson number one was fourteen question and answers, mm-hmm. and some of them were long. They maybe give you the first four or five, and you had to memorize them mm-hmm. and come back to the mosque and recite them. Mm-hmm. And upon successful recitation, they gave you the next set. And I didn't realize what an important training regiment this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why we, we were told that it was done because uh, when the police used to raid the mosque, which they would do periodically, the first thing they would seem to go after would, would be these lessons. Mm-hmm. And uh, Muhammad, of course, you know he was put in jail in the 19 during World War II mm-hmm. for uh, not refusing to serve in the military, yes. and. I think it was during this period that he realized, because we were told to put the lessons on official paper, which was to memorize them. Because once they were on official paper, no one could ever take them from you. You can study them anytime you want. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize at the time how important being able to remember is essential to one being able to reflectively uh, review mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. and for the purpose of under- greater understanding. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it, it really developed, I think I've had a decent memory to begin with, yes. maybe even a little above average, because uh, when I was uh, about 11, my mother entered me in these oratorical contests mm-hmm. with the Elks. Okay. And they, the subjects were always something to do with uh, uh, what we would call it, I guess, Freedom Fridays, people like Frederick Douglass, Murray McDowell, whom we had to, to research the history of these people and offer an oratory uh, uh, review, oratorical review mm-hmm. of their life and their achievements and so forth. So I, had, I, I realized later on that this had also began to to develop my ability to remember. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, in the, when I went into music, I didn't realize, but as a child, my, my mother used to have me as a child music, and now my day was all, radio was all music. Mm-hmm. So all the standard tunes, all the, especially the Broadway, the Tin Pan Alley, yeah. all the stuff that the jazz musicians adopted in the jazz later on, were on the radio all day. 
So you were able to... And I when, when, I, when I first got on these gigs, they, they, these guys would call these tunes out. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, didn't, I could barely read music anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even have chord changes, but I could begin... I was able to harmonize these things. Uh, and the old guys used to look around me at, on the bench and say, wow, they say the kid's all right. <laughs> and that's how, that's how I was able to progress in music so quickly. Uh-huh. Because uh, in my day, in those days, a, a lot of times, a lot of the bass players, except for the very good ones, the blah, the bass players didn't even play the right chords. They, they, they had a beat, which is why the music, the bass overtook the trombone. Uh-huh. Because the trombone had the sound, but it had no beat. Uh-huh. But the bass had a beat. Right. So they had a good beat. My beat was terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> you had a good sound. Yeah, yeah, but I, beat. No, <laughs> no, I didn't have, my sound wasn't good, but I had a terrible beat. Uh-huh. But I could... I can sort of play around the correct notes. Right. And I say play around because my intonation, I didn't even understand the concept of intonation yeah, yeah. until uh, some, almost, uh, I guess, 10 years later when Tom McTrade fired me uh-huh. after working with her for years. Yeah, Tom and Tom was one yeah. of my favorite singers. She though. called me in the yeah. California one and she said, listen, I said, what? She had my money, my salary, my ticket on the table. She said, I got to fire you. Uh-huh. I said, fine, before what? <laughs> she said, because you play out of tune, mm-hmm. and I can't stand that shit no more. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I didn't even know what playing out of tune meant. Because yeah. I came from a piano background. Yeah. So I was trying to play the bass with my eyes, mm-hmm. not with my ears. Mm-hmm. And some six months later, I, after she let me go, I was on a job, and I just happened to put the bass neck, my ear to the neck of the bass one night, and I heard it. So I called her the next day. I called her. She said, who is it? I said, Alex, what do you want? I said, I just want to thank you. She said, thank me for what? I said, for telling me the truth. She said, well, you're not getting the job back. Uh-huh. I, said, I said, well, yeah. I know, I don't, I'm not trying to get the job back, but I just, I just wanted to think. Because I realized that everybody else knew it. Mm-hmm. And the guys that I've been hanging out with and even working with, nobody said anything to me about it. Mm-hmm. And that there were certain jobs that I couldn't even get because of my bad intonation. Mm-hmm. And it realized, and I began to realize from that point that learning to play or improving my play meant improving myself on the, in, on the different components mm-hmm. required to perform. Intonation, rhythm, you know, reading, all these things. And that's what really set me on this mission of of learning about how music was put together and how I what I had to do to develop because my my teachers never told me this. Mm-hmm. So you had an intuitive um, way of adapting to understanding what was necessary. Well, I had I had a good ear. And, and your good ear. I had a good ear, and that was that was the sum total of it. But I had no understanding theoretically of music. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's why I went back to school. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, what, what I want to uh, we were going to take a break. At least I was going to take a break. But it seems as if we're in such a uh, flow, and and this an hour show is not going to do justice in terms of what we could you know review and what you have to share with us, the listening audience, and my wife and I. Uh, but I do want to touch upon though before. We get to the the end of this of this uh, of this show is 
help. Mm-hmm. And, and I was very impressed when, you know, we became friends on mm-hmm. Facebook mm-hmm. that you would do postings relative to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, uh, the religious aspect of our life mm-hmm. plays a significant part in terms of how we develop as human beings, as men and women, to uh, grow from children to teenagers to young adults mm-hmm. to older adults, senior adults, and so forth, relative to uh, health practice. Mm-hmm. And you were blessed through the Nation of Islam to be mm-hmm. exposed to how to eat and live mm-hmm. uh, and teachings through your peers and brothers and sisters who were traveling in that journey mm-hmm. to uh, encourage one another to have a healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. to not eat pork, mm-hmm. you know, and if we do eat meat, that it's certain way you should cook it and so forth. And indeed, we know in Islam we have what is called halal, mm-hmm. and in the Jewish community we have kosher. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. And a lot of us are not even cognizant of the, the mm-hmm. importance of the fact that the, the type of food you eat affects the way you think, <laughs> affects the way you perceive the most high in terms of your God, whatever mm-hmm. you call him or her. Or it. Or it. Yes. And so, as Malcolm would say, I always uh, refer to him in terms of we've been bamboozled, mm-hmm. we've been hoodwinked. Mm-hmm. You know, to think that we can um, uh, take off the the the, the, the chains, mm-hmm. you know, from around our neck, that yoke, mm-hmm. and and be free. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us are walking around here with the car, with mm-hmm. the house, and looking muscular and mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah. know, voluptuous and beautiful and what have you. But our our minds, our psyche. Not only that, but our physically, we're dead inside. We're dead inside. And we're diseased and mm-hmm. infirm, and we don't even realize. I was just listening to a program as I was waiting outside to come into your apartment. Mm-hmm. There's a doctor called Eric Braverman, yeah. and he uh, comes on every Sunday on uh, 770. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the fact that uh, he, when you come to him, he analyzes your total body with computers. Yeah. But the most important p- part of your body that he focuses in on is your brain. Yes. And he was saying that modern, so-called modern medicine, is decompositized. Yeah, I can't even get your back word. But anyway, it's broken down into individual areas, individual disciplines. Yes. He said, which... When you go to a doctor, he if you go for an allergy doctor, he sees for allergy. You go for uh, a urinary problem, it's a, a urologist. Yes. But he says these problems are usually connected to other problems, mm-hmm. and they all eventually are connected to your brain. Yes. So that he uh, purports to treat you in a totally holistic uh, manner, giving you the most... Uh, placing the most emphasis on your brain health, mm-hmm. which is that it, it is determined by the knowledge that you have and the type of knowledge that you get. Yes. I, I posted the other day on Facebook about this, the whole idea of eating, mm-hmm. that we have eating in this society under this uh Eurocentric uh, leadership has been geared towards pleasure. Yes, we eat for pleasure, but this was not the the the, the fundamental reason for eating. Eating was meant to 
to, to sustain life yes. and hopefully to prolong life. Mm-hmm. But what we are, what we are, that just like soul food. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, soul food was given to us initially because it was the cheapest way to maintain us. It mm-hmm. was the garbage that the white man didn't even want. Yes. And that's why the, the pork no, was so prominent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the intestines, the mm-hmm. hair, all heads, yeah. all of the hoof, and, all that stuff. The ironic stuff. thing is that the intestines, like, which is called chitlin. Yeah, yeah. It's served during Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christmas. Yeah. During the major holidays. Yeah, yeah. That's a specialty now. You're going to serve chitlin. But in my, in my studies, I found out that ancient, so-called ancient man mm-hmm. hardly ever ate muscle tissue, which is our, the main form of meat that we eat today. Mm-hmm. That if when you study uh, anthropological history, that the when they killed an animal, the chief hunter, was usually the bravest or the most skillful. He was given his choice of what to eat. And he always went for the organs. If you look at the predators, the lions and other, other elements, other predatory animals, mm-hmm. they when they kill something, the, the, the muscle tissue is the last thing they eat and bones. They always go for the internal organs. Mm-hmm. Now, as a child, I hated meat. Mm-hmm. And when I was about eight years old, I was judged to be allergic to all fowls. Mm-hmm. So I haven't eaten chicken or turkey, any bird since that eighth point in my age. Mm-hmm. This is some 70 years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only meat that I liked was beef liver. I used to like liver and onions. And people used to mock me. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, man, beef liver, wow, wow, wow. But subsequently I found out when I began to study nutrition, that the liver is the most nutritious part of the animal. It's the animal, it's part of the animal, of all animals, where the nutrients are all stored. Mm-hmm. You know, it has other functions as well, but primarily. But the liver, the heart, the lungs, and the brains mm-hmm. are the most nutritious part of any animal. And so if you're going to eat meat, mm-hmm. as the ancient men did, that's what they ate. It wasn't until fire came along that made eating muscle tissue as well as a lot of legumes and beans and nuts accessible right. because prior to fire, it was too difficult to chew it, right. you know, especially as men begin to age in their 20s and 30s. And many times they lost their teeth or their teeth were in bad shape. So, uh, you know, when, and, and finding these things, I, I was astounded, of course, uh, it, the irony I posted the other day about about Elijah Monte, he only wrote two books. Yeah, I, I, matter of fact, I made a copy of that of that coaching you did. You started off with this morning while stretching my magnificent yeah, body in an effort to maintain and continue my good growth. I was once again inspired to give thanks to my Creator for providing me with such an outstanding vehicle with which to make my journey through time, this life. I've been analyzing. And studying my physical self for about 60 years, and the more I learn, the more amazed I become at the wisdom of the Creator who first conceived us, and then brought us, man, woman, into production. We marvel at how automobiles from year to year show improvements in every facet of our existence, design, performance, accessories, etc., for example, but show no appreciation of the constant improvement and development for that which has 
taken place in man from the beginning of our existence here on earth. I just wanted to add that um, my wife and I both, we're vegetarians. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a vegetarian now, going on 28 years, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm also a marathoner. And I would have friends of mine back in the day, going back when I started considering being a vegetarian, Mm -hmm. how are you going to run marathons or run, period, and not eat meat? You know, that's where you get your protein from. But as you mentioned earlier, your legumes and other vegetables, you know, provide protein. Everything has and protein. Exactly. In <laughs> large form, and then we found out that everything indeed has a certain element of protein. And, um, and these same individuals, though, they consumed a lot of sugar. Yeah. You know, they consumed a lot of things and, and so-called food that wasn't really good for us, and meat, meat being included because it was not being cooked properly or if not um, uh, purchased from uh, righteous Mm -hmm. uh, providers, butchers who really knew that the animals were not fed adequately, uh, healthy rather. Or killed in a... Or killed in an unrighteous, unhalal, unkosher manner. Yeah. Yeah. So that goes to saying that, a lot to say that indeed those in our community of 7 billion people Mm -hmm. throughout the world who eat meat, the majority of them have a certain reverence mm-hmm. towards the food, especially the meat, because mm-hmm. they recognize that animal, that being, is a saint, uh, is, is a being that has a soul. Mm-hmm. And they give reverence to that, uh, that, that particular animal for providing it with nurturement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it being the person with nurturement, which is going to sustain their life. But here in the Western society, we have a uh, an indifference. We're conditioned to be indifferent. You know, when you say grace, you're just going through rudimentary, you know, uh, just a, 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 a non-conscious ritual of saying grace and not really dealing with the meaning. And and, of those, and also, um, if it's not kosher or halal, the blood's in the meat, which has the adrenaline in the meat, which causes a certain psychological, so forth. Adrenaline is a poison. Yes. It's the fight or flight hormone mm-hmm. that the adrenal glands secrete whenever you are under stress or yes. in danger. And it provides your body with an extra amount of energy. But the continuous consumption of it mm-hmm. is actually detrimental to your body. Mm-hmm. I mean, our big problem, uh, as I've learned primarily from Muhammad, was our ignorance of this language. We use words and we don't even really know what they mean. Mm-hmm. There was a Canadian philosopher, the guy that created the geodesic dome, I can't think of his name right now, but he had a statement. He said, the word is not the thing. And so when people use the word protein, they have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're repeating what they were programmed right, right. to say. You know, the reason why meat is supposed to be the preferred source of protein, you know, is because it possesses, theoretically, the eight essential anemo acids. Right. Proteins are anemo acids, mm-hmm. of which there are somewhere number in the 20s. 22. Yeah, 22 of these anemo acids. And so the white man, in, in developing his medical research, has discovered that meat was 
this one source where all of these essentially Nemo acids could be acquired. Right. What they also discovered was that in like in the Latin culture, the beans and rice, that a mixture of legumes and grains or seeds and mm-hmm. and other things can also provide you with the same. And this is why some of the dishes, the ethnic dishes in other groups have become popular. Uh, not because the people realized that they were getting the Nemo acids, the serving Nemo acids, but because they invariably promoted more health. Right. And sometimes a lot of the ethnic diets are just a matter of availability. Yes. You know, Such as me. Yeah, you ate what was available to you in the part of the world that you came up in. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they take great pride in it, but they're among the, the items that each ethnic group consumes for nourishment are many items that are no good as well as there are some items that are exceptionally nutritious. Mm -hmm. I've been eating lately uh, what they call these Mm superfoods. This is a concept that has arisen in the last five or ten years. Uh, And these superfoods now come from all areas of the world. Of the world, and they combine them now in these powders. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are supposed to be the most nutritious, uh, food, edible foods. These things like spirulina right. and corella, yeah, we germ, yeah, mm-hmm. all these things. So uh, black seed oil. I mean, it's you know the uh, the uh, the medical research or the scientific research is bringing to light so much of what we were unaware of about how and what food to eat, how to prepare it. I mean, one of the big things about Muhammad's book, How to Eat to Live, people used to scoff at it because they said everything was so repetitive. You kept saying the same thing over and over again. And and I, and I, I, I was kind of pretty missed by it too, but I realized this is how you teach. Yes. You know, and he was trying to teach. Now, one of the things is, is that going back to the African tradition, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if this was your experience when you went to Africa, uh, to Robi, I think you said, and, and yeah, I was in the, West Africa. I, no, I didn't. I, I went later, subsequently, I went to Africa. But on that trip, I went to Kenya and Tanzania primarily. Tanzania, okay. Yeah. And I understand that um, Swahili. It's uh, a, is it's in a, Tanzania. It's a, it's a, that's it's not only. That's right? all over. That's. Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, mm-hmm. and maybe uh, there's only two other countries in that East African uh, belt, mm-hmm. that area around that, I guess, not, it's below the, what they call the horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, but that's the, 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 the present pervasive so-called indigenous language. Yes. You know? So the, the, what struck me from reading books such as uh, uh, The Healing Wisdom of Africa, mm-hmm. Of Water and the Spirit by um, the uh, renowned uh, um, shaman Dr. Maladome Some, um, and then also uh, Yaya Diallo, the healing drum, and, and Brother Mitchell Hall. They emphasized the fact that indeed the musician was designated in the African community as being the healer. Mm-hmm. He or she was the one that had the knowledge of herbology mm-hmm. um, and diet. If someone got sick and ill, they would prescribe uh, a, a certain uh, portion uh, uh, to 
to for them to consume mm-hmm. and and for them to get well mm-hmm. and and to heal from a physical perspective as well as from a spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. And my mission is to to inspire those of us who are musicians to do like what you're doing to develop a certain understanding of how important it is to have a healthy diet and and to become healers as, mm-hmm. as it were. You know, uh, unfortunately, through the jazz community, a lot of us didn't have that knowledge, <laughs> you know. And, and, and there's another story about that in terms of when you're consuming um, intoxicants, alcohol mm-hmm. and drugs and what mm-hmm. have you, and there's a whole conversation about that, why we were inclined to want to use certain drugs, which were barbiturate in their nature, mm-hmm. to bring us down from this high experience of creating this, this beautiful music called jazz. And then of those of us who are depressed who wanted to use something to lift us up mm-hmm. using the uh, drugs that have like an infinimine uh, 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 type of characteristics such as cocaine. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to go through the conspiracy theory, you know, road, if you will. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is my desire that in our lifetime as elders uh, that, that we can um, reverse that tendency reverse that particular direction of, of self-medicating, of, of not really uh, picking up the mandle mm-hmm. that, that we had when, before we came here as slaves mm-hmm. uh, of, of, as musicians, being the healer of the community as opposed to one who's part of the instrument of the destruction of our community. Uh, with that being said, uh, we're at the end of the hour, okay. and um, I just want to thank everyone who joined us to listen to our show. Um, indeed, this is uh, uh, Barbara Wesley Gray, who's had the pleasure of having Brother Alex Lang uh, as our guest, esteemed guest. It's been my pleasure. And, and I really appreciate what you had to share with us and for you attending our show. Um, for those of us who would like to contact, do you have any contact information you'd like to leave? Well, they can always uh, follow me on Facebook, of course. Uh-huh. The name is spelled L-A-Y-N-E. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anyone wants to contact me directly, my phone number is 917-763-0748. Again, that's 917 763 Thank you so much. And those of us, uh, those of you listening, rather, if you'd like to contact myself, um, Barbara Wesley Gray, you can do that at my website at www.drumsofchange.com. That's, again, www.drumsofchange.com. Phone number 888-338-2508. Again, that's 888-338-2508. I thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you on board again with us next week. Uh, same time, that would be Sunday at 1 p.m. And as always, we end the show by giving homage and giving thanks to the one most high God, to whatever name you give he or she, that indeed we are thankful for being able to connect with one another. We give thanks to the ancestors. We give thanks to the deities. We give thanks to the guardians. We give thanks to the angels. All of us are realizing now more so than ever that we are only strong by us being connected to one another and helping each other in our journey. So, again, peace and love to everyone, and we will see you the next time.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 